You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. When I trusted Christ a little over 15 years ago, everything for me radically changed almost overnight. Sitting at the camp listening to the gospel message, I heard of my need for a Savior because of my sin. And repenting of my sin and turning from my sin, I went outside and I sat by the fireplace with my counselor and he walked me through what becoming a Christian was all about and how that was done and why I needed Christ. And I probably was a believer before I ever hit that fireside for I was under such conviction that for me I had to believe. I was under such conviction that I was running to Christ to flee from the wrath that was to come. And I sat down with my counselor and I prayed and then he followed up by explaining a few essentials of Christianity to me. And I left that night and went back to my cabin and with all of the lights out and and everything quiet and we were getting ready to go to sleep, I sat there and wept silently over my sin and over my finding of a Savior. The next morning I woke up and life would never be the same for me. It didn't mean I didn't have struggles. It didn't mean that I didn't have trials. It didn't mean that there were not times when I didn't fall into sin and experience repentance and confession and forgiveness. But it did mean that from that point forward I knew that my faith was real. And I knew that I was saved. Even though there were times when I would doubt the reality of that faith, I would be able to step back and look at Jim Osmond and say, is he different than he was before camp? And the answer to that was empirically, yes. Not only was my attitude different, my loves were different, my passions were different, my the realities that I sensed were all different. From the time that I believed in Christ, I had an inexplicable desire for holiness, a love for the truth, a love for the Lord, a hatred for my sin, all of a sudden it was like the lights came on and everything was made new for me. How do you know that your salvation is real? Do you have anything in your life that you can point to and say, I know I am saved because Christ has done this in me and I can explain it no other way than the grace of God made effective by the Word of God and He has changed my nature. Scripture says that the reality of saving faith is evidenced in a lot of ways. Saving faith is evidenced in a desire for holiness, a desire for worship, a desire for fellowship, a love for the Lord, a love for His truth, a love for sound doctrine, a love for the people of God, and a desire to be with the people of God, a love for His church. In short, if if Christ has changed your life, then your affections will be His affections. Your desires and loves will be His desires and loves. One of the things in Scripture that gets a lot of attention as an evidence of, the, of real salvation is a love for others. You see, when we are born naturally into this world, we are born self-centered, self-worshipping, self-focused, selfish people. We love ourselves. We love to exalt ourselves. We look out for ourselves. We, we pamper ourselves. We worship ourselves. We protect ourselves because everything is about self. But those who have been born again all of a sudden have a new love. They have a love for others. 
Because the Savior who Himself modeled that love for others and loved others now resides inside. And if my affections are His affections and He has a love for others, then I'll have a love for others. Philippians chapter 2, Paul referred to that love of others as the mind of Christ. Paul said this, Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but with lowliness of mind esteem others as better than yourself. And do not merely look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others. Isn't that what Jesus did? He came to seek and to save that what was lost. He came to die and give His life as a ransom for many. He washed His disciples' feet and He said, I've left you an example. You should do what I have done. He loved others. He gave Himself for others. In fact, Paul illustrates the mind of Christ by saying, that was the mind of Christ, to esteem His own interests below others. And He who existed in the form of God, as God Himself, did not consider the trappings and the prerogatives of His deity something to be held on to at all costs, But He laid aside His prerogatives of deity and leaving aside none of His essential nature, He came down here and became man. And we saw Him in appearance as a man in the form of a servant. He humbled Himself and became obedient to the Father's will, even obedient to the point of what? Death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2. That's the mind of Christ. It's others. I love others. I live for others. It's no longer about self. It's one of the evidences of true and genuine salvation. Paul was such a man. It was about others for Paul. You read about Paul, you read Paul's writings, and you are hard-pressed to find anything that smacks of selfishness. Hard-pressed. Now, if you read everything I've ever written, you'd find a lot of stuff that smacks of selfishness, but not in the Apostle Paul. From the moment of his conversion, something was radically different. From the moment of his conversion, suddenly, Paul's life was about others. And he himself had the mind of Christ. And his young protege, Timothy, Timothy must have learned that well. Timothy must have learned it so well from Paul because in Philippians chapter 2, immediately after telling us about the mind of Christ and how Christ demonstrated that mind, Paul says this of Timothy, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Everybody else looks out for their own interests, but not Timothy. He'll be concerned for you. Timothy had the mind of Christ. When we left the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 14 last week, we saw Paul demonstrating that selflessness. Acts chapter 14, you need to turn there in your Bibles. I need to turn there in my Bible. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 19, the Apostle Paul moves from Antioch and into Iconium and through Iconium into Lystra, and he arrives in Lystra only to find that he has been followed by some people from Antioch and Iconium, And if you were here last week, then you remember they grabbed the Apostle Paul and they stoned him inside the city. Supposing him to be dead, they grabbed him probably by his heels and drug him outside the city and left him in a bloody, bleeding mass of heat flesh outside the city. Left him for dead. And while the disciples are standing around Paul, he kind of comes to. He never really died. He comes to. And he got up and he went back into the city. And the next day he left for a 40-mile trip to the city of Derby. Having arrived in Derby, he preaches there, doesn't experience a lot of hostility, and we would expect the Apostle Paul, having been stoned, having been drug outside the city, having been left for dead, we would expect him to continue traveling east and arrive in Tarsus. But not Paul. What does he do? 
He turns around and in order to strengthen the disciples that he has made in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, he returns to the three cities that have caused him the most suffering. There are believers there. And he returns to be with those believers. For Paul, it is not regarding myself as preeminent. It is living for others. And the Apostle Paul demonstrated his others' mindset in returning to those cities. The comforts, the conveniences, the familiarity of home rested just on the other side, just a few days' journey away, and Paul would have nothing of it. He goes back to Lystra, to Antioch, and to Iconium. Last week we saw how the Apostle Paul persevered under suffering for righteousness' sake, and now he returns to those cities in order that he might prepare others to persevere under suffering for righteousness' sake. Look at the beginning in verse 21. It says that Paul left Derby and he returned to these cities, verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You'll notice that the Apostle Paul has really a four-step follow-up ministry for his ministry. Having evangelized the believers, the Apostle Paul goes back to those cities and he does four things. And these four things really drive the nail into his ministry. You and I might ask, how is it that one man in ten years' time could plant churches in four Roman provinces and that they would all be well-established, biblically functioning, healthy churches, or at least the most of them, and that he would take Christianity and plant those churches where they had never existed before And at the end of ten years, Paul would be able to say, my work there is done. In ten years' time, all of those churches. You see, the Apostle Paul was not just a flurry of activity and work. He was a flurry of accomplishment. All of the work and all of the activity and all of the service in the world, all of the flurry of busyness that you are involved in, it doesn't amount to anything if we don't actually accomplish something of eternal significance. How did the Apostle Paul accomplish so much? Four things he did with these brand new disciples. First of all, he strengthened them. He strengthened the souls of the disciples with the word. Look at verse 22. He was strengthening the souls of the disciples. He went back through and he strengthened the word. Says It, it comes from a word that sounds a lot like our word for steroids. Steroids. It means to beef up somebody or something. To add strength to it. It's used three times in the book of Acts of beefing up or strengthening and encouraging the disciples. Paul went back to each one of these churches and he would know that having suffered himself in those cities, that these brand new believers were going to suffer also. Not only had these churches become beachheads of opposition, or these cities had become beachheads of opposition to the gospel on this first trip, but they also produced fruit. All of these believers who now were really like sitting ducks for all of the opposition around them, having no leadership, having no in-depth teaching, really no in-depth discipleship, we might expect that when the opposition would come, they would sort of cower back. And they would sort of melt away, maybe fall away from the faith, disband and become secret Christians and not say anything about it. And if that were to happen, friends, then it would prove the undoing of all Paul's work. He wants them to stand strong. So he goes back through and he strengthens them. When you and I are born physically, we are born weak. We are dependent upon somebody else to feed us until we reach a point where we can feed ourselves. And we do not have physical strength. We are dependent upon other people to carry us around and move us around and change us and change our clothing and bathe us and all that. And as we grow, the intention is that you and I might grow in physical strength. 
The same is true when we are born as newborn babes in Christ. We are spiritually weak. We need somebody to feed us until we get to the point where we can open the Word and begin to feed ourselves and take in spiritual nourishment. And hopefully over the course of taking in spiritual nourishment and over the course of time, we grow up a little bit and become strengthened. What is the God-ordained, God-given tool for strengthening an individual's soul? What is it? What is it that God has given to us that brings us from being babes in Christ when we hunger for it to being mature in the Lord and taking in meat? You know what it is? Paul went back into these churches and he gave them a pep rally. Hey, guys, think positive thoughts. Look up. Be encouraged. Keep up the good work. Rah, 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 rah. I'm going on to the next city. That's not what he did. You know what he did? You know how you strengthen the soul of a disciple? It's Acts chapter 20. The Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders, I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with the saints who are sanctified. I commit you to the Lord, and I commit you to the word of His grace, which builds you up. This is Luke's way of indicating to us that when the Apostle Paul went back through these cities, he sat down with the believers in those cities in the church, and he taught them the word. And he gave them the word. And he preached to them the word. That's how you strengthen the souls of believers. First John chapter 2, John says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. The, the level to which I am strong in my faith and the level to which I am taught and the word of God abides in me are the same. They, they, they are together and I cannot separate them. There's no such thing as a strong saint who is ignorant of the truth. No such thing. You might be a weak saint and know a lot, but you cannot be a strong saint and be ignorant. Your level of maturity is directly proportional to your level of teaching and your receipt of the Word. You want a weak soul, friends? Just neglect the Bible. Don't read it every day. Don't study it. God forbid, don't obey it. Just neglect it altogether. You want a strong soul? Then put away everything else and feast on the bread of life. That will strengthen your souls. They went back through these churches and they strengthened the souls of the disciples. Satan, our enemy, loves to prey on weak souls because they are easily drawn away after error. They are easily manipulated and deceived and wooed after false teaching. They're easily scared. And the Apostle Paul does not want any of that happening to these brand new baby Christians. So he strengthens them by teaching them the Word. Second, it says he encourages them to continue in the faith. Not only did he strengthen the souls of the disciples with the word, but he encouraged them to continue in the faith. Verse 22 says, He was saying to them, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Keep on keeping on. Keep on pressing on in the faith. I have a friend who, in our correspondence, when we write back and forth, he is a pastor, and whenever we write back and forth, he always closes it, Keep on keeping on. Or keep pressing on. That's encouraging to me. That's what the apostle says to them. He encourages them to continue in the faith. He wants these brand new disciples to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. To make their calling and election sure by working out that salvation. He doesn't want them to abandon the faith. And friends, you and I demonstrate the reality of our faith by continuing in the faith. Those who abandon the faith just show that that was not genuine faith to begin with. There are a lot of people who profess to have eternal life who then later abandon the faith, and what they show is that it, their profession was just that, only a profession. John says they went out from among us 
because they were not of us. And if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it might be shown they were not of us to begin with. You don't apostatize from the faith when your salvation is genuine and real and you have been born again and regenerated by the Spirit of God. Paul is encouraging them, continue in the faith. Keep on keeping on. And he says to them, it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. Now how is that encouraging? That's supposed to be encouraging? Through many tribulations I enter the kingdom of God? Paul's saying to them, it's going to be tough. The road to the kingdom is a rough road. There's nothing smooth about it. There's nothing easy about it. It is through, not around many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. It's not over many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. But it is right through the heart of many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. Now how is that an encouragement to anybody? You know what's encouraging about that? Paul's giving them a dose of reality. And he's saying to them, it's going to be tough. And I believe that it was already tough for them. And he's saying to them, you got to keep on pressing on, understanding that the road to the goal is a tough road. It's a hard one to hold. It's a difficult one to plow. But you've got to keep on. Because it's through these tribulations that we're going to enter the kingdom of God. You want the kingdom? Then prepare for the cauldron. You want the, you want the crown? Then get ready for the cross. You say, did I sign up for that? Yeah, when you, when you came to the suffering Savior, you signed up for that. You said yes to that. You said yes to this gospel, that it's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. It's not an easy road to hold. And you gotta be prepared to take it. Do you think Paul would last five minutes in a church with that kind of a message today? <laughs> I don't think he would. He wants them to be prepared to experience sufferings. With the fresh scar tissue on his face, with the scab still on his head and his face from the stoning, with the bruises just beginning to fade and the bones just starting to heal, the Apostle Paul walks into these cities and he says, look, it's through tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. And they're looking at a man whom they just saw get stoned a few weeks earlier for his preaching of the kingdom. Paul knew of where he knew whereof he spoke. Same thing was true for Peter. Peter says you shouldn't be surprised when various trials and temptations come upon you. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials which are among you, which are for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. First Peter chapter four. Peter says, but rejoice in them, understanding that at the the glory of His revelation. When we stand in His presence, we will be able to say that the trials of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. We're going to stand in heaven and all of the glory and the reward that is there, the kingdom makes the tribulation worth it. You want the kingdom? Then prepare for the cauldron. Because it's through the tribulations that you enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not that you're working for your salvation, friends. But it's that the road that is trod by the Savior is a rough one. And if you're going to be with the Savior, you're going to be on the rough road. So prepare for tribulation. Now you say, does that mean that everything that I experience and all my tribulation just comes to me because the Lord just sends it that way? Well, some of your tribulation might be because of sin. That's called chastisement. But when there is no sin, then take heart in the fact and be encouraged with the fact that the results of godly living is tribulation. That's good news, isn't it? That's encouraging. 
That's what I want to know. So that when something comes my way, I don't automatically say to myself, well, it must be because God hates me. Or he doesn't love me as next to the, as the next, as much as the next guy who has everything given to him. It's just, this is the path to the kingdom. This is the road you, tr- you, you hold. I have to contrast this with the modern message that we get through our Christian airwaves, through Christian television, through Christian media. The modern gospel of evangelical Christianity, and I cannot stress how loosely I use that term at this point, evangelical Christianity, the modern gospel is one of easy living. Come to Jesus, He'll make you happy, healthy, wealthy. It'll be a joyful party, excitement and fulfillment and all of this. What does the Apostle Paul say? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Have you seen those Christian bumper stickers, no Jesus, no peace, no Jesus, no peace, no Jesus, N-O, Jesus, no peace, no peace. If you know K-N-O, Jesus, then you K-N-O, peace. That's the bumper sticker. How many of you have seen that? If you know Jesus, then you know peace. But without Jesus, there's no peace. How about this bumper sticker? No Jesus, no suffering. If you know Jesus, then you know suffering. How many of you put that on your car? You know what other bumper stickers you'll never see on somebody's car? Acts 14.22, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never see 2 Timothy 3.12 on the back of anybody's vehicle. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You'll never see another one, Hebrews 12.14, pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Those are bumper stickers you'll never see. We're offered a Christianity that's free from repentance, free from perseverance, free from sin, free from judgment, free from guilt. We're offered a Christianity that's free of righteousness, free of commitment. It's Christian free, is what it is. Paul wouldn't last five minutes in a modern church. Not five minutes. Because he would come in and he would say, it's through tribulation that you enter the kingdom of God. And all of the people would be saying to themselves, I haven't had any tribulation. What's the implication of that? There's no kingdom at the end of that road. He strengthened them with the word. He encouraged them to continue in the faith. The third thing that the Apostle Paul did is he organized them into churches under elders. You'll notice in verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Appointed elders for them in every church. Now, there's something odd that kind of stands out about this as we read this because we, we have to understand that all of these new believers were new believers. They hadn't been believers for months and years and had a chance to grow up and mature and become spiritual men. So how is it that the Apostle Paul can go back into a church that has existed where people have been believers at the most several weeks, maybe a few months, how is it that you get elder material out of a group of brand new believers? How do you arrive at that? I think there's a few things that go into it. One of them is I think that this speaks volumes as to Paul and Barnabas' ability to discern gifted leaders and then to disciple gifted leaders. I think that when they came back into those churches, those Christian believers who had been believers for only a few weeks or a few months would grow in their grace and knowledge, grow in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and in grace, and they would begin to distinguish themselves. And Paul and Barnabas would be able to look at them and say, I think this guy's got the gift of teaching. And so when they came back in and they started teaching them the Word of God, they began to discern the giftedness. And as they observed all of that, with much prayer and fasting, Paul and Barnabas appointed some to elders. They said, you're going to be a pastor, and you're going to be a pastor, and you're going to be a pastor. And they would bring together this leadership team. And friends, I can imagine that there would be some very intense discipleship going on. 
all day, late into the night. The Apostle Paul did not just say, hey, you guys just take a vote, whoever the best looking one is, whoever the most popular one is, make him your leader and we're going on to Iconium. It's not what he did. These would be new believers, yes, but they would be spiritual believers. And the Apostle Paul would be looking for the qualifications that are in Scripture for an elder, looking for those character qualifications, looking for the gifted teacher. He would be looking for people who had a love for the Lord and who are exercising this capacity of shepherding and oversight and having appointed them. He did it with prayer and fasting. It's not something that they did flippantly. The church doesn't recognize elders flippantly or, or quickly. There's much prayer and thought that goes into that process. As you begin to discern the people whom God is calling to that position, and having discerned those people, having prayed, having fasted, the Apostle Paul points elders, he matures them up, he strengthens them with the word, and then he moves on. And he leaves in his path where he has been fully functioning churches with gifted leadership who have the pastoral oversight. They were shepherds. In the New Testament, an elder is a shepherd, is a overseer. Their three terms are used interchangeably. And I want you to notice something significant that's repeated over and over in Scripture. And if we had the time, then I would take sort of a, a rabbit trail here and give you all of the references. Look what Luke says. When they had appointed elders, plural, in every church, what? Singular. That is the pattern throughout the New Testament. Throughout the book of Acts, throughout the epistles, it is always the same. The elders, plural, of the church, singular. For throughout the New Testament, the model of leadership that is given to us is a biblically qualified, biblically gifted council of men who jointly pastor the local church. An elder is a shepherd, is a pastor, is a, is a shepherd. It's all the same. They appointed a plurality of men in every church singular that they visited, and that was Paul's pattern. Not just one person to lead them, but a group of qualified and called men to shepherd that flock and those shepherds would take over where the apostles left off. So he's taught them the word and strengthened their souls. He has encouraged them to continue in the faith. And then he has organized them under a pastoral leadership. What's left? The fourth thing that they do. They commit them to the Lord. Verse 23. Having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The word commended there is a word that means to entrust. It was used of somebody giving a deposit to somebody else to entrust somebody with something. You commit it to somebody. You go down to the bank, you commit your funds to that bank, you entrust it to them in their wise keeping and in their use, and you hand it over to them, you're entrusting it. You're committing it. That's the idea here. Having committed these disciples to the Lord, they moved on. They've strengthened their souls. They've encouraged them in the faith. They've organized them under pastoral leadership, and then they just commit them to the Lord. What else are you going to do? After all, it's his church, right? It's his flock. So let the great shepherd take care of his flock. Do you think Paul worried about it? After he left these churches, do you think he stayed up all night wondering how they were doing? I don't think he did. Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. I think that was the confidence of the Apostle Paul. He commits them to the Lord and he understands it's his flock. He'll watch over it. He'll take care of it. He'll see to it. What else can he do? He's taught them the word. He's encouraged them. He's organized pastoral leadership. There's nothing else he needs to do. Such was the confidence of the Apostle Paul in the Word of God. Paul was so confident in his gospel message that he could preach the gospel without gimmick, without advertisement, without trick, 
without lure, just preach the gospel. And Paul was confident that God would use the preaching of his word and the proclamation of the gospel to save his elect. What confidence. And then once the elect were saved, Paul was confident that the teaching of the word was enough to sanctify those believers. And having been saved and having been sanctified, the Apostle Paul knew that the power of the Spirit of God through his word would secure those believers. And so he just commits them to the Lord. They're your church. They're your sheep. You take care of them. We're going to go on and do the work in the rest of the cities. Such was the confidence of the Apostle Paul in the word of God to save and sanctify and secure his people. And he could move on. Taught them the word. I've given them pastoral leadership. And we've committed them to the Lord. My work is done. Go to the next city. And that's what he did. He worked his way back with the disciples. And he left in his path fully functioning, biblically trained churches who had apostolic doctrine, pastoral leadership, and divine protection. What a man. That's incredible. Now, friends, let me ask you, are you enduring tribulations right now? I want you to take heart in something. It's through those tribulations that we enter the kingdom of heaven. He has not promised us a smooth road. He has not promised us an easy time. He has not promised us cream and gravy and all of the wonderful things that go with life. We're not promised any of that. Here's our promise, that it is through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you're not enduring tribulations, you've got to ask yourself, what path am I on? And if you're on a different path, then the Lord will chasten you, and He'll bring you back to where He wants you to be, which is on the path to the kingdom. And that's a rough road. Take heart in that. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for Your Word and for the promises in it. And Lord, if we were just promised tribulation, then we would quickly and soon lose heart because we'd have nothing to look forward to. But we take confidence in the fact that on the other side of these tribulations is the reward and that it is far greater than anything we can endure here no matter what problems it is that we're facing, no matter what it is that we suffer for righteousness and for Christ. We know that the tribulation is worth it because it is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so we thank You for Your Word. And we thank you for your grace, and we do affirm afresh our understanding and commitment to you to continue in this faith, thanking you for the gracious gift of Christ and the fact that it is you who gives us the strength and works in us what we cannot work, that gift of perseverance. We pray that you'd help us to trust you and give us the grace to look to you during times of tribulation and suffering, for we understand that the reward is nothing short of you, and your glory and eternity with Christ. In his name we thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.